The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We want to turn to the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, where we're concluding our study in this book, 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, verse 12. Hear the Word of God. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, Brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the concluding word of First Thessalonians. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. We delight to sing about that. We sang about that in our first hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And tonight, come thou long expected Jesus. From our fears and sins, release us, deliver us. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And Jesus delivered his people once and for all by his victory on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. But we see tonight in our text that he also continues to work out that new status of positional holiness in their life in Christ. He works it out in their lives in terms of their their daily progress in sanctification, in Christian growth become like Christ. And here in these concluding instructions and exhortations from Paul, we see a clear picture of what this transforming work of Christ looks like very practically. It's not something just theoretical up there in the sky. It works out very practical as Jesus continues to work in his people's lives, transforming them day by day. It's pretty amazing when you think of it. We've seen something of what the church at Thessalonica was like. They'd only been Christians for a very short time when Paul wrote this, and they lived in a very different culture and age than we do. They wouldn't have known anything about electricity or iPhones or texting or anything like that. But you think of it, what Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. 
And these words of exhortation and instruction still speak powerfully and clearly to believers nowadays, as the Bible always does. It speaks into our lives. And so we want to briefly look at these instructions, how Jesus continues to transform us. Number one, Jesus transforms his people in their relationships, we want to see. And then we'll look at Jesus transforms his people in their inner life. And finally, God gives us encouragement to press on. First, Jesus transforms his people in their relationships with others, verses 12 through 15. These verses are united because they speak about how the Christian is called to relate to those around him. And it begins with speaking about spiritual leadership. And Paul tells these young believers to respect those who labor among them. And then it goes on to describe how they do that. They are over them in the Lord and they admonish them. And and he goes on in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I'm not going to go into this in great depth because Dr. Rogers just preached on elder government, the rule of elders and the the leadership of elders in the church. And clearly elders are being described here. In Titus 1.5, we see Paul writes to Titus and tells him to appoint elders in every church that they had established on their missionary trip. And so Paul is calling them to a right relationship to those who are seeking to guide them and instruct them in the things of God and to esteem them in love because of their work. Notice he says it's because of their work. It's because of their office. It's because God, what God has called them to. It's not a matter of personalities and someone getting all the attention or anything like that. It should not be that. But what Paul is basically saying is effective leadership in the church calls for effective following as well. Those who are called to lead are called to do it, not lording it over the flock in any way, Peter says, but humbly seeking to take the calling that God has called them with. And those who follow, those who are upholding that leadership in the church, are called to encourage that. And we see from verse 13 that this is not to be something that's merely external or merely grudging in any way. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I just know that I can speak for the pastoral staff and the leadership, the elders at Westminster, that we are so blessed to have a congregation that is so encouraging and supportive of us in our work in ministering the Word of God, because that's the essential nature of what admonishing is all about, to seek to teach and to preach the Word of God. And what a blessing it is to be part of a church that is so encouraging in that way. I think the context of Thessalonians is probably this young church with leaders, with elders who were brand new in their work. And we see in First Thessalonians, and we see it more in Second Thessalonians, that there were problems arising. One of them was that there are those who were so convinced that Jesus was going to come so soon that they shouldn't work anymore, and they quit their jobs. And although the Bible doesn't say this, it's not far-fetched to infer that the elders of the church there tried to admonish them, I'm sure, and say, hey, John, go back to your job. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We'll, we'll find that verse in Second Thessalonians. We just don't know, probably, 
that wasn't completely well received by people all the time. You know, the elders try to lead and guide and exhort in ways, but that's not always well received. And elders don't always do that kind of thing very well. There's mistakes made on both sides. But Paul is exhorting them, be thoughtful, be careful in your relationship to the spiritual leadership of the church. They are laboring for your well-being. But under these terms of relationships, we also see Paul describe their relationships with one another in verses 13, the end of verse 13 to verse 15. Still on our first point here, but another aspect of their relationships. And the overarching point is at the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. What a far-reaching, overarching exhortation that is. Be at peace among yourselves. So he's speaking about all of us now in relationship to one another in the church and even spelling out in our relationships with everyone that we know in the world, with everyone that we have to live at peace with. This is no small thing. It's certainly no small thing in the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, it's a unity God gives the church by Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit, but Christians are called to maintain it because it can easily be lost. And it's a sad thing to see churches split and see divisions and factions take place. We teach a Sunday school class called the Peacemaker, which is a a long 13-week class on a book by Ken Sandy about biblical peacemaking in your life. And we've taught that course a number of times over the years, and every time we teach that course, I have people come up to me during the class, and especially at the end of the class, and say, John, this is really revolutionary material. This is transforming my life. This is causing me to think about my relationships at work or at school or in my home in a completely different way to realize what is required of me in terms of being a peacemaker in a biblical sense, to keeping short accounts, to asking for forgiveness, to being forbearing, to work at, a, at situations in a peacemaking way. And then Paul gives further guidance for living at peace. In verse 14, he tells them to cultivate a genuine and wise concern for one another based on where people are. Look what he says here. Different categories of individuals. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, probably those who didn't want to work. Encourage the faint-hearted, maybe those giving way to fear. Help the weak. He might be speaking about the weak in sense of falling back into sin. We saw that he exhorted them to sexual purity earlier in the book. They lived in a culture and society that was very much like our day and age, very much given over to various kinds of sin. And he's saying, help the weak in that way. And then he says, be patient with them all. What a series of brief exhortations to give us a glimpse of what wise one-anothering looks like. You don't treat everybody the same. Some people need kid loves. Some people need maybe, you know, straight shooting when you talk about them. Others need to be encouraged that they're, re- they're ready to give up. And a mature and growing Christian will be involved in other people's lives. Christians aren't people who just come to church and sneak in and sneak out and never get involved in other believers' lives. No, Christians are to be actively involved in one another's lives. You can't be involved in everybody's life in a big church like this, but in a small group. And they are to be involved 
with others in a wise way. Doesn't this verse just bleed wisdom? Think about who you're ministering to and seeking to help and appropriately reach out to them. And notice it's with a true concern for others' well-being. It's not a self-absorbed relationship. It's not all about you. It's about how you can be a blessing to others around you. So cultivate a wise and genuine concern for one another in your peacemaking, in your seeking to be at peace with them. And then cultivate a right attitude when others hurt you or when they wrong you. Notice verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What a great way to conclude this little section about relationships. Do not retaliate. Don't seek vengeance. Scripture speaks about that many times. You're not to have that attitude of seeking retaliation. But notice that even that isn't enough. It's not sufficient just not to retaliate. Notice how he goes on in, the, in verse 15. Um, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's not enough just to refrain from retaliation. Instead, Christians are called to be actively blessing one another and others in their lives. It reminds me of Romans 12 at verse 19 when Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're called not only to not be vengeful, but also to seek and to pray and to bless those who curse us and maybe our enemies in some sense. When you stop and think about it, this is far-reaching transformation that Jesus Christ is bringing about in his people's lives. And so contrary to the way the world looks at things. I read a newspaper story the other day, maybe some of you read it, about somebody shooting their neighbor's dog. I love dogs, so I always feel bad when I read things like this. I don't, maybe, the bad, maybe the dog was bad or misbehaving in some way, but of course, the neighbor got trouble for doing this. And it reminded me of a chapter in Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, um, that has the chapter is an extended case study of the barking dog incident. And it's a real, it's a real case that actually took place in somebody's lives that Ken Sandy elaborates on. It's neighbors who lived in this rural countryside area, and the one family had young children at home, including a baby that needed to get sleep. And the neighbors next door had a dog that was very beloved, that was the grandson dog of the, of the wife, of the wife's parents. Well, this dog barked. I won't go through the whole thing, but Ken Sandy kind of walks through this with you and lets you see this family was seeking to honor Christ, to resolve this problem in a Christ-honoring way. And they prayed about it, and they sought to connect with the people next door that they knew somewhat, and they were kind of rebuffed, and they tried again. And, and Ken Sandy walks through all the principles of the book, and you see them lived out in real life. I'm, I'm not really making a sales pitch for this book. But the point was, as you read that, you think, wow, this is a lot of work. And what's our natural reaction? Just to get angry? You know, the natural human reaction is, Shoot the dog, right? In the middle of the night when nobody knows. Something like that. 
Jesus is at work transforming our relationships. But then, secondly, Jesus transforms his people in their inner life. He not only transforms our relationships, those things out there, but he's at work transforming our inner life. And we see this in verses 16 to 22. Let's briefly walk through the characteristics we see there. In verses 16, 17, and 18, we, three, we see three related qualities of inner life. Rejoice always. In other words, our joy is to always be in God. It's not limited by our circumstances. Secondly, verse 17, pray without ceasing. And prayer is the lifting up of our hearts to God. It's an awareness of God's presence in our lives and a, and a resting in the love of Christ daily. In that sense, we pray without ceasing. Not that our minds can always engage in active, thoughtful prayer, but that we regularly go to resting in God and resting in Christ. And then verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is the will of God? Earlier in the book, we saw Paul say, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That's one part of the will of God. That's a specific command, flee sexual immorality. Here, another place that he highlights the will of God is that Christians are people who are thankful in all circumstances. That doesn't mean that we say evil things are good, but that we rest in our sovereign God and cultivate the spirit of thankfulness. I like what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, the way to rejoice always is to pray without ceasing. Calvin says, in these commands, the apostle bids us repose in the providence of God. What a neat phrase. The apostle bids us to repose, that idea of resting in the providence of God. And clearly they're related. All these three commands are related. I like to use the analogy of spiritual breathing. There's something that should be part of our daily life. Now, I just mentioned this, so maybe you thought of it, but how many of you in the last hour consciously thought about your breathing? Probably none of us. We just don't think about that. We do it all the time, right? Well, Spiritual breathing is not quite like that because of our sinful man that remains within us. It's still a spiritual battle to breathe spiritually, we might say, to be praying without ceasing, to be rejoicing in God always, to be giving thanks in everything. But that's the goal, to have those characteristics become more and more our default orientation, to use a computer term. You know, we come up with these new terms. I like them. You've probably heard me use the illustration of the compass pointing north. And when something else is distracting us and we're not doing our geometry homework or planning the grocery list for tomorrow, and our minds have a moment or two to ourselves, does our compass of our hearts tend to turn north toward God, toward giving thanks Not that we always have to do that, but regularly throughout our day, there's this spiritual breathing going on. Clearly, this is not a shallow view of Christian life and experience. This is a very high goal. But isn't it glorious? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it attractive to think that that's what Jesus is doing in his people's lives? But he goes on with that. He says in verse 19, 
Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. We read in Ephesians, and here's a different analogy. It's saying that it's possible, to some degree, for Christians who are indwelt by the Spirit to quench the Holy Spirit. The analogy is like putting out the fire. But we know that for the true believer, it's impossible to completely do that. The Spirit of God doesn't allow us to do that. It keeps working in our lives. But it's still a danger we have to be aware of. The point is to live in such a way, do not live in such a way as to cause the Holy Spirit's influence to burn low in our lives. One of the ways that occurs, one of the ways we quench the Spirit is unrepented sin. And so we need to live a daily life of repentance, even in our inner life, even in our thought life, when our thoughts go astray in some way a wrong thought, a sinful thought, an envious thought, whatever it is. We need to repent of our thinking and turn to Christ and ask for his power and say, Lord, help me to more and more exercise control in my thought life. This is very specific and it's very immediate to immediately repent and call out upon the Lord in that sense. I like the way Galatians 5.25 puts it. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then in verses 20 to 21, I think he talks about further aspects to not quenching the Spirit. He says in verse 20, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Now you might say, how do we not despise prophecies in our day and head? Do we age? Do we believe in prophecies, revelation from God in that sense? Well, our church believes, and I strongly believe, that revelation in that sense has ceased. Some don't agree with that in our day and age, but according to the reform view, there was stopgap revelation, we might say, in the early apostolic church. There were still miracles being done in that sense. There were still apostles. But the churches of that day did not have the Bible as we have it. They didn't even have the letters of the Apostle Paul. The Gospels weren't written yet. They didn't have the revelation in its written form So God gave them prophecies, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. We're not going to get into all of that. But it took the place of the revelation we have now in its completed form. That ceased, we believe now. But we have the complete word of God, and we have preaching based on that. So the equivalent to this is don't despise the preaching of the word of God. Yes, test everything. You're to test it all to see if it's in accord with God's word. But humbly and earnestly submit yourself to the Word of God as it's preached, as it's read, as you read it yourself. That is one important way not to quench the Holy Spirit. It may be kind of a crass analogy, but think of the Holy Spirit as a wood stove. And if the wood all burns up, the wood is the ammunition, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. If the wood burns up, the fire is going to burn low. So you pack that wood stove. You stoke it high. You, you get the material, the raw material in there. And so don't think lightly of prophesying, of the preaching of the Word of God, of the power of the Word of God as God brings it into our hearts. And then abstain from every form of evil. The King James Version has all appearances of evil, which is not really a good translation. It it gives the idea that you don't want to even do something that appears wrong. 
And that may be wise. I'm not saying that's not wise, but that's not what the Bible says here. What it's saying is, the, is in the ESV and the NIV does a good job as well, abstain from every form of evil. That's another subcategory, another way not to quench the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't think that you can entertain some forms of evil in your heart and in your thought life and be advancing spiritually. No, God calls you to a universal obedience, to obey all the commands of God in the power of the Spirit, looking to Jesus Christ. You can't pick and choose what you're going to obey. And when you try to do that, and when we try to do that, God causes us to have stymied growth. Our growth is not what it should be in Christ. And so the command here, abstain from every form of evil. Maybe it's a TV show you shouldn't watch. Maybe it's some activity you shouldn't do. Maybe it's an area of eating too much food or gossip or slander or lust or whatever the case may be. Don't indulge in any form of sin. Be rigorous. Be ruthless in seeking to put to death sin in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see what Jesus Christ is doing to transform our inner life. And what a wonderful goal that is as well. But then we conclude our third point is God gives us encouragement to press on. And I want to see that especially in verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. You've heard that as a benediction many times. It's a wonderful verse to know by heart. And notice the encouragement we have in God's promise to finally and fully transform us. Notice here that it shows us God is the primary agent in our transformation. Praise be to God, it doesn't ultimately depend on us. It's the Holy Spirit who's the primary agent making us like Jesus Christ on the basis of what Jesus has done. He's like the master craftsman working in our lives. I've done some home repair construction work over the years, but uh, on anything more than kind of screwing in a a screw or hammering in a nail, I get a master craftsman to help me. You know, I remember in New Jersey, we covered the porch walls of our old cement back porch, and I had a good friend of mine down the street come who knew what he was doing, and I cooperated You know, but he was the one who knew what he was doing. That's how it is with the Holy Spirit. He knows what he's doing. Thanks be to God. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And notice that the transformation is whole person transformation. Some people are confused that Paul mentions spirit and soul and body here. I'm not going to go into it because we don't have time, but scriptures teach two-part man. The anthropology, how we are made up, is soul and body, or spirit and body. Spirit and soul are the same. People who teach a tripartite view of man, a three-part, always get in problems with that. And we could, again, take a lot of time to discuss that. But Paul is using both these terms, spirit spirit and soul, for emphasis, just to emphasize the completeness, the whole person transformation that is taking place. It's in, it's in our hearts. It's in our relationships. It's in what we do, where we go. All of these things, it's a, it's a thorough transformation. And then he concludes with these very encouraging words. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we're blameless before Jesus Christ comes. That means at the coming, we are now blameless because the work is complete. Jesus glorifies us. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. What great encouragement by telling us of the final outcome. God is faithful, and we can rest in him. In the spring of 1945, the Allies were moving across Europe. And by March of that year, it was inevitable that the Allies were winning the war. The Americans knew it. The British knew it. The French knew it. The Germans knew it. The Russians knew it. Everybody knew that Germany was defeated. It was only a matter of time. There was still fierce fighting There were still casualties by the thousands, Americans still being killed. But there was a sense of inevitability that the Allies were advancing and World War II was going to be won. It was just a matter of when. Do you know that it's even more sure that if you belong to Jesus Christ, the victory is assured? So as we hear this teaching about how God is transforming us, and you may feel like, wow, I've got a long way to go, be encouraged. Whether you go to be with the Lord tonight in your sleep, or whether you live to be 100 and Jesus Christ returns on your 100th birthday, or whatever the case might be, when you see Jesus face to face, it will be completed. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. He's done that decisively once and for all, and he's working it out in our lives. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the victory Jesus Christ has won. Help us to be encouraged in these concluding instructions and exhortations to us. Help us to take them to heart. Help us even this week to be thinking of ways that we can more deeply follow Jesus Christ and seek to cooperate and keep in step with the Spirit as he works his goodwill in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.